I'm Sam Freeman, and this is Practicing. In this third pandemic summer, it's difficult to say anything about COVID that hasn't been said before. More than two years into this transformative event, we've pretty much heard it all. But that doesn't mean we've reached a state of peaceful coexistence with the virus or an acceptance of pandemic life. In spite of all that's unfolded since news of a novel respiratory virus emerged out of Wuhan, China in late 2019, the infection has continued to surprise us and catch us off guard. Even at this late stage, with many effective vaccines and therapies and a near global consensus from authorities that it's time to roll back measures and learn to quote-unquote live with the virus, we continue to struggle with new variants, massive numbers of infections, and, in spite of the many means of prevention and treatment at our disposal, illness and death. While many of us have probably had COVID, or at the very least know someone who has, we are by no means done with this pandemic. I've been hesitant to dedicate an episode to COVID, and uncertain of the point of expending yet more energy on what is certainly the most talked about subject of the last two years. But faced with the virus's persistent and ever-changing impact on our lives, and having so many unanswered and nagging questions about our response to it myself, I decided it needed to be done. I chose Donald Vinn, an infectious disease clinician and researcher, as my guest for this conversation. Don is an experienced medical communicator and a measured, rigorous voice on COVID. I came to know of him because of his vocal and unflinching but always factual assessments of our local response to COVID here in Quebec. He's also actively engaged in research on the virus and contributed to an international study on severe COVID that was published in the prestigious journal Science in 2020 and was named one of 2020's 10 remarkable scientific discoveries by the equally prestigious journal Nature. So, he seemed like the ideal person to have on for a deep dive on COVID. Donald Vinn is an infectious disease specialist and medical microbiologist at the McGill University Health Center. He is director of the Center of Excellence for Genetic Research in Infection and Immunity and Fonds de Recherche du Québec Santé senior scholar with the Translational Research Program on Human Immunodeficiencies and Genetic Susceptibility to Infectious Diseases at the Research Institute of the McGill University Health Center. His frequent media appearances have earned him a reputation as a trusted voice on infectious diseases such as COVID-19, monkeypox, and the rare diseases he studies. He's been interviewed on many occasions by such outlets as CBC, BBC, and NPR. Don and I talked about what his research has to teach us about COVID and how it shifts the paradigm for understanding infectious diseases, his evolution as a medical and scientific communicator, and the benefits and pitfalls of COVID Twitter. Here's our conversation. Donald Vinn, welcome to Practicing. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's really a pleasure. I'm looking forward to a spirited conversation. Don, we're well over two years into this COVID pandemic. We're now in a seventh wave of COVID, a third of Omicron. I'm wondering where I'm finding you psychically, mentally today. Are you feeling hopeful, discouraged, worried, just plain sick of it all? Where are you at? Well, I think for sure 
I'm sick of it all. I think we all are sick of it, right? From a from both a public perspective and a professional perspective, I can't imagine that there's not somebody who's fed up with a seventh wave of a pandemic. You know, I think though that we're fed up for different reasons. As a member of the public, I I would think that the public is just fed up because, uh, you know, some of it is information overload that we're hearing about it constantly, and to the point where some of these some some of the impacts have become so abstract. Like when we talk about hospitalization rates or death rates, at some point over two and a half years, it has just become numbers rather than persons for the public. And I think that, you know, that that becomes an issue. You know, other things as well, masks, which may be uncomfortable for some and abnormal for all of us, you know, repeated needs for vaccinations, all of that contributes to the fatigue. On the other hand, there's also professional fatigue, right? As healthcare workers, they refer to us as the front lines, but really we're the back line, right? If the healthcare system fails, then, then society is in really in big trouble because all other illnesses cannot be managed appropriately. That's the professional fatigue that at least I'm feeling, right? That we have patients who come in too late uh, with, you know, leukemias and cancers and organ failures requiring transplants and all these things that perhaps, perhaps the trajectory of their care would have been different had they been able to come in sooner in the absence of a pandemic. Yeah. Today in Quebec, I think five emergency rooms told people not to come in if they could help it. So we're not through that dynamic yet, right? Right. I mean, you know, if five or so emergency rooms are are turning away patients and, and, and you tell them, well, I'm sorry, but it's not urgent enough. You need to go somewhere else. Where is that somewhere else, right? Because th- th- this has been a lingering issue over decades that there is nowhere else, which is why the emergency room is sort of the bottleneck. And now we're turning people away because, you know, we are short-staffed or overworked or under-resourced or, or whatever the term is. You can imagine that this is the, the canary in the coal mine, that our healthcare system is crumbling and isn't holding on very tightly. We're really in dire situations right now. And of course, COVID contributes to that. Let's take a little step back. I'd like you to tell me a little bit about what you were doing before the pandemic, before this all started. What kind of research and clinical work did you do before COVID? Prior to COVID, you have to kind of think back. That seems like a lifetime ago. I was a clinician scientist. I still am a clinician scientist. But my research program at the McGill University Health Center really consisted of, you know, focusing on immunocompromised patients. I was developing what we call the ID hot service. That's the infectious disease service for hematology, oncology, and transplants. That's an inpatient service. And I also had an outpatient clinic where I focused on people who had actually genetic immune deficiencies. And my research lab was complementing those those clinical investigations. So we would do genomic investigations and immunological investigations to identify the underpinnings of somebody's immune deficiency that led usually in the context of the patients that I saw to recurrent or problematic infections so that we could try to figure out their biology, but also try to figure out how to best treat them. And then COVID came and boy, did it come, it came like a tsunami. But as we remember from the first few waves, it was a bit odd, right? That it was contagious and there were a lot of people getting infected, a lot of people getting sick, but only a small proportion of people were getting hospitalized and dying. And, you know, we would say things like, well, you know, it's the elderly and well, they're old, so they have old immune systems. And, and we really didn't understand the biology or specifically the immunobiology of why some people were getting severe COVID and others weren't. But my clinical research program actually already focused on answering that question, at least as how it pertains to other infections. And so that was an easy pivot to try to understand COVID. And that's what I've been doing as well since then. When we talk about infectious diseases, what we have to remember outside of the COVID sphere is that 
we're all exposed to microbes. And, uh, you know, some of us may become colonized with it, uh, but some of us can become sick with it, and some of us can become very sick with it. A nice example is something like strep. Strep can sit in our in our throat, in our pharynx, and not cause any problems whatsoever. In some people, it'll cause a strep throat, the pharyngitis. Uh, that can be quite problematic. They can make them quite sick with the fevers and the sore throats. Uh, and they'll get better with antibiotics. But that same bug can also cause flesh-eating disease. So the fact that you can see a spectrum of manifestations to a single microbe tells us that there's a lot of this inter-individual variability. And I was focusing on the genetic aspects and the immunological aspects behind that variability. And then here comes COVID. And in fact, it's the same story. There's this spectrum of manifestations. So I already had the tools in place to try to understand at least why some people got severe COVID. So you're studying um, so-called COVID resistors, right? People who might be really closely exposed, living with an infected person or in close contact with them for a long time and will not get infected or won't get sick at all. I'll tell you, the first time I saw a COVID patient in the ICU, it was weird because this was a man in his mid-50s who who was in life-threatening state from COVID. You know very well, right, that when you do a medical evaluation, you have to get a history. And so obviously I couldn't speak to the person. He was uh, intubated uh, on a machine to help him breathe, so you can't get a history from him. So I got a history from his wife who lives with him, except that while he was in the ICU on death's door, his wife was at home, and it hit me two questions at the same time. Why is this guy in the ICU with a life-threatening form of a disease, whereas his wife, who undoubtedly was exposed to the same virus, was completely well and on the phone. And so there were two questions. What caused severe disease? And eventually, what caused people to be resistant to infections? Over the last two and a half years, I, I've been you know, fortunate because I have a, a research program already with the tools in place to answer this. I was able to collaborate with an international consortium to exactly tackle all the different questions that we're trying to understand uh, about COVID. Do you have any preliminary findings from that? Or can you tell us a bit ways in which that might help us deal with COVID as a population? Yeah. So I, I love your questions uh, because I think that there's two parts. One is the academic or the scientific component. And the other, as clinicians, as you and I are clinicians, the end of the day is how is this relevant? So the first part is we, we tackled a few of the different forms of COVID. The most important form, at least at the beginning, right, was the, the severe COVID, the life-threatening disease. Why do some people get the life-threatening disease? And what we found were biological reasons. You know, prior to that, we had epidemiological reasons. We would say something like old age, men, chronic cardiovascular disease. We would say things, but one is that not all old people, not all males were coming down with, with COVID. And of course, the other thing is if old age and sex were the major determinants, we're kind of in trouble because we can't really reverse those, right? So what we had found was actually two parallel uh, findings. First, what we found was predominantly in elderly males, um, in their blood, you can detect what we call autoantibodies to type 1 interferon. So let me just explain what that means. Type 1 interferon is a cytokine. It's a type of hormone that the immune system uses to, to stimulate other parts of the immune system. 
And so when we first encounter the virus, one of the earliest responses to the COVID is the production of this type 1 interferon uh, cytokine. And what that does is that that really revs up all the cells that encounter the virus, and it creates an antiviral state where the cells are trying to fight off the virus that has infected them, but also stimulate the, the immune response to bring in the helpers to try and eliminate infected cells and mount an immune response to eliminate the virus. Normally, when we would produce antibodies, we produce antibodies to foreign material, right? That's the whole purpose of a vaccine is that you inject yourself with, you know, a part of the virus, your body sees that as being foreign, it produces antibodies in other parts of the immune system that will recognize that protein, so that if you ever see that true virus that bears that protein, you will be ready and armed to be able to neutralize and eliminate that virus. So that's the, what an antibody is supposed to do. But what we found were these particularly elderly males had these rogue antibodies, these autoantibodies that instead of targeting foreign molecules like a viral protein, it actually targeted and neutralized their own type 1 interferon immune response. Essentially, they were shooting themselves in the foot. And so what happened is that we think that that contributes to why elderly people, specifically elderly males, are vulnerable to severe disease with COVID. And in a parallel finding, what we found is that there were uh, about uh, 8% of the population who has severe disease have actually genetic mutations in this same type 1 interferon pathway. So we have two uh, groups of people who tell us the same story, that uh, you know, either you neutralize your type 1 interferon response with autoantibodies, or you have a genetic defect in the ability to either produce or respond to type 1 interferon. But both of these groups converge on type 1 interferon. Type 1 interferon doesn't work in these groups, and as a result, they get severe disease. So that was one of the major findings um, that we had. And in fact, it was actually deemed as one of the major discoveries of 2020, because it was at the end of 2020. And then since then, we've also been working on trying to figure out other things. For example, at the beginning of the pandemic, what we may not remember was that there was this type of rash associated with COVID called, you know, the purple toes or the COVID toes that could have been related to what we call a vasculitis or inflammation of the vessels. Again, we're trying to determine if there's a genetic component as to why some people get that. We know that some people, children particularly, can get this multi-inflammatory syndrome of children's state, this MIST-C. And what we've seen is that it's not all children who get affected with COVID. It's only a proportion of them. And again, we're looking to see if there's genetic features for that. And, and you know, there's some indications that there may be. And then the, the corollary of all of this is not infection, but is resistance to infection. And that's what we're currently studying. And we're, we're really in the process now of genomic analysis. So we don't actually have any candidate genes or molecules to discuss yet. It's so interesting because so much of, I think, our thinking and the conversation both the public and the scientific conversation around how people get infected more generally, but, you know, since the pandemic about COVID and its variants, it's all about looking at the pathogen. How virulent is it? How nasty is it? Is this, you know, mutation worse than the last and how? But you're looking at it in a complete mirror image. You're saying, how is the host, how is the infected person going to respond and that also will have a huge role. Yeah, this is actually the major paradigm issue in infectious diseases. As a clinician in infectious diseases, you are trained to find the bug that's causing it and give a medication that targets the bug. That's the bread and butter of it. And that, in fact, has ruled the paradigm for nearly a century. But what we also know 
in that same century, if we look at the history of infectious diseases, is that it's been well recognized that it's not everybody who sees the bug uh, who's going to get sick, right? This inter-individual variability. And so what I'm trying to figure out is how can we understand the immunology behind it? Sometimes it's genetic, sometimes it's not, but we want to understand the molecular immunology because then we can figure out better tools. Maybe instead of targeting the microbe, like which is our current dogma, maybe we can also target the host. Maybe we can give medications that boost the immune response to help fight off the infection. And this becomes particularly important as we run out of medications that can target the microbe through resistance. We could speak at length about any given aspect of pandemic management, the virus's evolution, vaccine use, masking, critiques of public health measures, critiques of political decisions, the list really goes on. And we could probably speak about each of those for hours. But I wonder very generally if you could situate me as to where your thinking is on the pandemic by telling me first for you three things what the greatest or most unexpected success of this pandemic has been, what the greatest disappointment or setback has been, and where you think the greatest challenge remains. Uh, it's easy to look back and criticize. But I think, I think nonetheless, we do have to take that retrospective analysis because that's the only way we can recognize any mistakes that we made, and you know, when you make a mistake, it's not an ego issue. It's simply an erudite issue. You're trying to educate yourself so that you don't make that same mistake. No system is perfect. So what we have to ask ourselves is where was the system's failure and how can we fix it? If we do that sincerely, without any sort of egos in terms of, you know, receiving constructive criticisms and without any malice in terms of trying to, to target people, I think we actually will be able to solve problems more efficiently. So to your, to your question, you know, what was the biggest success? I think the biggest success was the rapid development of COVID-specific vaccines. And I think the biggest public health achievement, at least in Quebec and other parts of Canada, was the very hard decision that was really not based on evidence other than scientific immunological principles, that in the face of a limited supply of vaccines, we rolled out first those to as many people who are at risk for severe disease as possible, even though the, the evidence suggested that we needed to sort of hoard the vaccines and do sort of a, a condensed two-dose dosing regimen. And I think the fact that we were able to roll out widely a first dose to the vulnerable population really saved lives that probably we won't even appreciate how many people that was. So I think that was the biggest success. I think the biggest missed opportunity is what we're seeing right now, which is I think we are proud of our vaccine success, but we are relying on our vaccine success as if success will repeat itself, as if lightning will strike twice. In the sense that we have a, a vaccine strategy, we are awaiting next generation vaccines, but all we're doing is that rather than implementing other measures in parallel that will be effective, irrespective of the variant, and that will be long-term, and that will also benefit other aspects beyond COVID, right? And for me, that key issue is ventilation. We are at the next phase of humanity. We, we understood better means of preventing, you know, food and water transmission of, of infections. Right now, we're at that next frontier, which is clean air. 
And I, I think that if we don't take this seriously, we'll, we'll not only be dealing with COVID uh, and other, by the way, respiratory viruses, but we're also going to be dealing with pollution. So I think this is the missed opportunity. We, we have succeeded with vaccines, although th- that story is not finished, but we have stagnated with ventilation. And it's unfortunate because it actually is one of these things that nobody has to have their quote-unquote freedom impinged upon to put in place. You don't have to have individual behavior. You just have to have a central push and spend money, which we're happy to do on so many other things, to change uh, the way buildings are built. But you don't need anyone to put on a mask. In fact, to be honest with you, it would allow people who don't want to wear masks, and that's pretty much all of us. I don't think there's one person who really wants to wear the mask, but it would allow us to take off the mask, at least, you know, within certain, you know, densities of, of crowds with, in indoor spaces. You can imagine, right, that if we had a classroom that was adequately ventilated, then if you're not wearing a mask or if you're not wearing the mask properly, that still provides us a layer of protection. So ventilation will be absolutely critical. Do you have any thoughts on what the biggest ongoing or remaining challenges? I'll tell you the the other ongoing challenge is apathy. I think that the pandemic of apathy is is the issue that we're going to be dealing with. And I I don't know how to the answer to how to overcome that because on the one hand, you can understand, you know, the apathy comes from the the fatigue that we talked about before. People are just fed up. They don't want to hear about it. They don't want to do anything anymore. They want to go back to the way it was before COVID. But I don't think we're going back to the way it was before COVID, at least not anytime soon. What we have to adapt is to this new reality that COVID is there. And so what we need to do is figure out, okay, well, we can't get inundated with COVID every day. But what we need to do is establish certain metrics that the government mandates onto the people and saying, we're going to look at A, B, and C. And if A, B, and C criteria are met, this tells us that we're heading in the wrong direction. You know, maybe there's a wave or or whatever. And so we're going to have to tighten down. I think that there has to be this open communication about a plan with the corollary, of course, saying that if A, B, and C are heading in the right direction, then we're going to loosen up. I, I use the example of when we treat people with, with a certain condition, let's just say a skin infection like cellulitis. Well, when you give a medication, the antibiotic, and it gets better, that's great. But if it doesn't get better, or if it gets better and then it recurs, well, we we don't say, well, I'm going to continue with the same antibiotic because uh, I'm too proud to change. The situation dictates a change. And so we need to change. We need to do more investigations to figure out what the problem is and find an alternative solution. And I think if we use that same medical approach to the pandemic and to public health policies, I think that would be in a better place right now. Where I think we are now is the worst of both worlds, where we have not actually forgotten about it. It's still very, very present in day-to-day life. All you have to do is contract the infection and like have a child in school or daycare to understand the disruption it engenders or look at shutdowns of hospitals because everybody's in isolation because they're infected. So it's very disruptive, but there's no actual collective will to allow people to be protected. It's all on the individual and no individual can mount a one man stand against this hyper infectious respiratory virus you will get it unless you hole yourself up in your basement and don't see anyone, which is not healthy. So it it's, it's, makes me sad because I think people then kind of have to make a choice of being really conscientious to their own detriment. And actually people are being told, do what's right for you. But then if you get it, 
you know, then you'll pay, quote unquote, by being sick, but also not being able to have childcare and see people and all these other things. So I could not agree with you more. And I think that there's a word that you you said that really resonates with me, which is it's up to the individual, right? The the word individual, because the problem with individual is not only is there inter-individual variability in how you respond to the virus immunologically, which is what we talked about. There's also inter-individual variability in how we respond to the virus in society. I am not ignorant of the fact that as a physician, I am comfortable in terms of an income. That puts me in a very privileged position. I have worked with families. Uh, we, we take care of people who come from underprivileged or marginalized backgrounds where, guess what, when their kid is home from school or from camp because the camps or the school is closed, that's a day of work that that person has to miss. And that day of work Well, one, that's a loss of income. And two, there's only so many of those you can have before they risk getting fired. There are the societal impacts to the absenteeism that can occur from getting infected, in addition to, of course, the medical impacts. And and I think that when we say, you know, we have to have a collective measure, that's because in this Gaussian distribution, this bell curve of our society, we have to act collectively so that the most disadvantaged are not disadvantaged any further than they need to be. And that includes people who are immunocompromised, not putting them at risk unnecessarily beyond what they already have to deal with. That that includes people who are socially marginalized, who don't have to struggle any more than they already have to. That is the actual concept of why we have a society. And then to say, well, we're going to forego all that and we're going to go individualistic, then then we are giving up on the idea of a society, in my opinion. Something I've I've been fascinated by over the course of the pandemic is, I think, in the collective imagination, when we think about popular movies on the topic of pandemics like outbreak or contagion, we would expect that a response to a novel virus would be carried out by these kind of nerdy, highly trained, laboratory-based scientists and public health professionals. Um, These people would know how to harness technology, laboratories, the military to contain a virus, treat sick people, develop a cure. You know, these organizations like the CDC that are portrayed as being at the cutting edge. But in the end, we saw very mixed and at times bumbling responses from public health agencies with major changes in messaging as the science evolved. And we saw how different countries had different approaches, but also within countries like here in Canada, from province to province, there were different responses. It's all been a bit of a mess, and some messages have filtered down more universally, but there's never been a uniform response or approach. And I think that meant that public trust in those institutions like the CDC and other public health agencies has eroded that they're not this perfect marriage of theoretical science and practical epidemiology that we might have expected. And that paved the way for all kinds of other people. I think a lot of them MDs, medical doctors like you, with expertise that's adjacent or 
really central in understanding an infectious disease, but people with no or little public health training who didn't know how to talk to a population or devise policies that would help prevent the spread of an infection. That's a long way of asking how you think this interplay between the public health world and public health professionals and the medical world has played out in all of this. What are the differences between the two groups, in your opinion? How have they diverged? How have they each performed in the pandemic? So when you started off as saying that, you know, in the movies, right? And you're right. In the movies, you usually have, you know, the nerd who's going to come and save the world. And I think the issue there is we realize a few things. First is that science is incremental and we can only get to solutions through that incremental science. And that really means that we need to be doing science consistently. What we see in the movies, that fantasy world, the reason why we don't have the success movies, in addition to the fact that it's just not real, is the fact that, you know, whether we're talking about public health in Canada or in the US, you're really talking about a confederacy where you have a federal agency that has certain mandates or or powers. And then you have regional uh, agencies that have their own. If we use Canada as an example, we have the Public Health Agency of Canada, the federal government that had certain powers, for example, you know, COVID policies at the borders, the capacity to procure vaccines, the capacity to invest and procure in promising medications. So that's what the federal government was going to do. And the federal government has its own committees that take time to analyze some of some of this information. But then when you make a recommendation, it then goes to the provincial uh, equivalents to then redo the song and dance of having their own committees review the same data. And then, and then the other issue is that when you're on these committees, it really is an isolated world. It's esoteric, it's very academic, and often it involves people who aren't boots on the ground. And so it's disconnected, disconnected in terms of what realistically happening and disconnected in terms of how to communicate with the people who are affected or infected or sick. And I think that's where medical and public health divergence occurred. Um, and I think it's to the detriment because as a physician, if you can't communicate with a patient, the likelihood of you being able to successfully care for that patient is very, very low. Public health experts see the population as their patient, but the principles of medical care remain the same, effective communication. And I think that's where we've diverged, particularly in the last year. And I think that's one of the disappointments that's happened. And I don't think it's irreparable. I think we have the capacity to go back and say, okay, well, let's, let's go back to first principles on how to effectively communicate with our patient, whether it's an individual or a population. If we don't go back to that, we're only going to build more and more distrust. Because hmm. I felt at times that, that the attitude of an MD, the first do no harm, for instance, deeply rooted axiom in medical thinking is very different from an attitude of harm reduction, which might be, you know, a more typical public health populational approach. And I guess where where I'm getting at with the question is that some physicians are overgeneralizing their training, their thinking about individual patients to a population. And the people who really were trained, you know, the CDC had this communication Bible that they used to do crisis communication. That's supposed to be their big strength. 
that we we've gotten kind of wires crossed between the two communities and that they're really not the same. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think we have to be careful of what we call this ecological fallacy, right? Which is, you know, data that's concluded on at a populational level may not necessarily apply at the individual level. And likewise, you know, the anecdotal uh, corollary, which is what I saw at the individual level applies to the populational level. I think both of those are, are flaws in logic. I totally agree. I think we're all guilty of that. I think that's, you know, what we see is what we presume is the norm. And of course, that's not always the case. And you're right, the, the axioms are different, right? Uh, first, do no harm versus harm reduction, which is there's going to be some harm, but let's minimize that as much as possible. Th- those are fundamentally different. Don, as an infectious disease physician and researcher on the genetics of immunity, you had some media visibility before COVID. Here in Quebec, you have a bit of a reputation as a disease detective or a local doctor house. But I think the extent to which your expertise is in demand from mainstream media now probably far exceeds what it was before COVID. What is it like for someone in your position, a clinician, a researcher, to be thrust into the public eye like this and to be asked to answer the questions that everyone wants answers to, not just other scientists? Did you ever think there would come a day when airborne spread and vaccine technologies, antibodies, T-cell responses, reinfection rates would be the stuff of newspaper headlines and the dinnertime conversation of regular people? (laughs) So I'm chuckling because the answer is no. I've been pleasantly surprised over the last two and a half years. I've given town halls at schools. They tend to be high schools. And I prepare a presentation that's sort of what I think is to their levels. And then the questions that come from the students, some of them, those questions are so in-depth and well thought out that I feel silly for having you know, tried to, to simplify things uh, because there are people who really want to understand the science. And for some people, it actually stimulates them to want to go into the sciences and into medicine. You know, At the end of the day, that's what we are. We are ambassadors for medicine. We are ambassadors for science. And so it's it's been a pleasant endeavor, at least on my end. Has it affected your practice, both in changing maybe the way you talk to patients or approach patients, but also in terms of, you know, like those kids at the town halls, are you finding patients have changed? Yeah, well, I think everyone's changed. I've changed. I I think I've changed. I hope I've improved. I'm used to talking to patients. I'm used to talking to to, to children. I have children of my own. So I know how to explain things to, to their level. But at the same time, I'm always, you know, looking to see, well, how could I have improved that communication or make sure that it's factual and not critical or not, you know, risking uh, being a personal ad hominem. On the other hand, I've also received essentially attacks, emails or whatever you will, tweets, and where people just make sort of the most inane comments that are not anything related to the content of an interview or discussion, but really just personal attacks. I've had to develop a bit of a thick skin to that. You know, it goes with the responsibilities. You mentioned Twitter, and you are someone who's quite active on Twitter. I myself got on Twitter very recently, like in the last few months, and I was pretty stunned to discover the intensity of the animosity between people and different groups of people who have different takes on on COVID, on what needs to be done and where we need to go from here. I'm talking like about scientists with relevant expertise, not just trolls or political people or other types of influencers. 
I think COVID has put basic scientists and medical doctors into the center of this issue that affects every human being on the planet. I think combine that heightened interest in this issue and relevance to everyone with social media, and you get these really explosive results. Do you think that's been positive for science and medicine? So that's a great question. You know, despite what my Twitter link says, I've been on for like maybe nine months as well. It does open your eyes to a different world. I think the beauty about Twitter is you can share information quickly. The problem with Twitter is you've only got a certain number of characters to do so. Why that becomes an issue is as physicians and as scientists, we tend to not be concise. We tend to be verbose necessarily, right? Let's just necessarily, we don't say, oh, your heart is fine. What we say is we didn't find any uh, electrocardiographic or blood findings suggestive of a heart attack, but if you're symptoms concern. You know what I mean? There's paragraphs. And the problem with Twitter is you don't have that. You don't have the space to say the words you need to say, and you don't have the tone that, that comes along with some of these words. And so what happens is that it, it can easily be taken out of context. And yes, there have been some attacks within or between uh, medical and scientific communities that have been downright malicious. And of course, I'm going to just exclude the trolls for the moment because their intent is to be malicious. But we have to remember that we need to be constructive. And medicine and science is constructive. We didn't get to where we are now because we attack each other. We get to where we are now in medicine and science because we stand on the shoulders of the giants that preceded us. And that is, by definition, constructive, the building up of things. And so, you know, what we have to do is is use that framework of, of trying to build an answer rather than to destroy somebody else. And so that, that's, I think, the problem with Twitter. On the other hand, when you get into the situation of being a media presence and you're asked for your impressions on things, we also have to remember that adage of, you know, stay in your lane. And we do that in medicine all the time. I would never, ever look at an MRI of a brain and say, okay, you need neurosurgery and I'm going to do it. That's just ridiculous, right? And that's because we are already used to working, if you will, in silos. Silos have problems, but at the same time, they, they, they also keep us a little bit in check. If you're beyond your expertise, at least from a medical legal perspective, I'm not going to cross that line. I'm going to ask an expert for their opinion. That's the culture of medicine that I think people don't necessarily appreciate. What we have to realize is that culture needs to be pervasive in science as well. I don't think that you can have somebody who studies Ebola virus in a test tube and tells us how we should be ventilating our buildings. I think that's an example where you're not staying in your lane. So I think we need to keep that in mind. You could be in different lanes, but maybe at different speeds, or you like put your hazards on in some of the lanes. I express opinions about all kinds of things I have no expertise in. I have intuitions or whatever, just opinions. But I try to qualify those as such. That I find is often lacking. You said something about science being incremental. And where I see a big friction and contradiction is between that incremental, iterative, small steps to get somewhere big process and having to drop a tweet every day or a few times a day that's going to get a lot of likes and a lot of retweets. They don't go together. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, to, to your first point about having an opinion, I, I'm not saying that we, we, we can't have opinions about things 
that are outside of our field. Gosh, if I only had opinions only on infections, I'd be pretty boring, right? I think we would all be boring. I do have opinions on climate change and on, uh, you know, uh, street signs of Montreal and, you know, our pothole festivals that we have. I have opinions on all those. Cute dogs. Yeah, exactly. I'm not a civil engineer. I'm not a vet, right? I think we can have opinions on those. But I think we have to be careful about having an opinion versus giving an advice. Sometimes it's a bit gray, but, but we do need to keep that in mind. And then to your other point about incremental, I think that's important that we have to remember that at the end of the day, we really are trying to just improve, right? If we want to improve science, we can say, well, hey, look at this fact. Oh, you know what? I had said this before, but this is not right. Or I see how you're looking at the study, but I see it this way. We can try to have a healthy debate on Twitter, given the character limits. But I think that if we try to just be sensationalist and do something that gets as a like or a, a blue check mark, at least for me, it's, it's not the goal. Don, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me for all the work you do. I look forward to continuing to see you in media and posting uh, photos of Montreal's legendary potholes on Twitter. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks for this opportunity, Sam. Have a good one. That was my conversation with Donald Vinn. For more information, check out the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate it on the platform of your choice and spread the word. And if you have any comments or guest suggestions, please don't hesitate to reach out through the show's website, practicingpod.com. That's practicing with a C. I'll be back with more conversations on practicing, so stay tuned. Practicing is hosted, written, and produced by me, Sam Freeman. Sarah Freeman provides invaluable editorial advice. Artwork is by Jeff Landman. Music is by Mr. Smith, made available under Creative Commons licensing. Thanks also to Juniper Belshaw, Jeff Dyke, Katerina Haddad, Jess Malls, Howard Mitnick, Ezra Siller, and Catherine Tang.